few years back, I went to my wife and said, hey, I've got a great vacation for us. I have found a 1961 International Harvester pickup truck in the beautiful state of Iowa. And what I didn't tell her was that trucks that were made about 60 years ago don't quite drive the same as modern trucks. Um, but anyway, she, I told her, you know, I was like, hey, Sarah, look, we'll get to go to Iowa. We'll drive through Nebraska. We'll go through the Colorado Rockies. We'll see Utah. And for both of us, we hadn't seen those states. So it sounded like an amazing trip. So I got her to say yes. So we got on the plane in late November and we landed in Iowa. The only issue that we didn't quite realize is that the temperature in Iowa is often a little bit different than it is in Southern California. In fact, when we left California, it was about 78 degrees. When we landed in Iowa, it was about zero degrees with a wind chill. Um, so it was cold. Um, but all that, we were both excited to, to go get this truck, or maybe me a little bit more so than her. So we got to Iowa, this small town. It was snowing at the time. You know, you know, if you're from California, you're like, oh my gosh, there's snow. It was romantic. We held hands. It, it was this great thing. And then we saw the truck. And I was really excited. I, I love International Harvester. It's an old company that made pickup trucks. She was a little skeptical because when we got in the truck, um, the guy had removed all carpet, all sound deadening to reveal the rust holes in the floor and in the firewall. That firewall is a section between the motor and the cab. And there were these big holes in it, which at the time didn't seem like a big deal until we started driving. So we started driving. It starts to snow a little heavier. The windshield wipers barely worked. But the thing was, as we realized pretty quickly, is the heater wasn't working. And if you have a car that has no insulation, no carpet, and holes all through the floor and the front of the car, a little bit of snow and ice can get in as you're going about 60 miles an hour. Um, and as we drove, the temperature started to drop even more, and there was no heater. So... <laughs> Again, for me, I was still excited because I had the truck, but for my wife, as we're in an old truck, the top speed of six going top speed 60 miles an hour with snow coming into the cab, uh, so much so that when we stopped to get gas, there were icicles that had formed below the dash inside the cab. Um, as you can imagine, uh, there was some there was some good conversation we had. It was, it was one of those marriage builder exercises. <laughs> Um, but after about 700 miles, we got to the Rocky Mountains in Colorado uh, and after a few stops to grab more scarfs and, and stuff like that. But it was it was a rough trip, uh, to say the least. But we got to the Rockies and I'll never forget because we we're driving up these hills, still snowing quite a bit. But we got to like the top of this mountain and we parked because I think we kind of broke down. Um, but, but, you know, I'll just say we parked. And I remember we looked and there was this amazing view. And even though it was freezing cold, it was one of those moments where the sun that came through the clouds, you know, you're imagining like Simba come out from light, you know, it's just one of those moments. And so we get out and we look over the mountains. And I remember for a moment, we forgot about how freezing it was. We forgot about how horrible it was to drive the truck. And we just paused. And we, and, we, and we looked and I'll, I'll never forget the feeling of feeling so small, feeling so insignificant next to how grand and amazing the view was. But it got me thinking. 
And I wonder if you've ever felt this before. Why, why is it that we as human beings love to look at things that are so much bigger, so much greater, or so much more majestic than we are? Why is it that it brings us so much joy to see things like scenery and a sunset in the ocean or the Grand Canyon and all these amazing things if it makes us feel so small? Well, there's a reason, and we're going to talk about that later this morning. You know, the last two weeks uh, have been kind of standalone sermons. We're going to start a series next week that I'm really excited about. But the last two weeks have been kind of about just refocusing as a church. And Pastor Mike did an awesome job last week about reminding us to be unified as a body of Christ. But this week, I want to look at a few verses in Colossians that are going to refocus us, or at least that's my hope. See, have you ever asked or paused and asked yourself, where is this all going? You know, I think 2020 for a lot of us, it's been a year where there's been some pauses that have caused us to think, okay, what, what's my life about? Do I like where this is headed, right? Do, is the purpose of all, you know, what, what's the reasoning behind all of this? And my hope is that through these verses in Colossians, uh, that it's going to answer some of those questions. You see, the reason why we're going to look at Colossians is the church in Colossae when Paul writes this letter to them, they were going through kind of the same stuff. They had to pause and say, okay, do we have this thing right? Do we have this figured out? Are we going the right direction? You see, contextually, what was going on is a lot of these people were new Christians. They formed this church. This is pretty soon after Jesus died and rose again. And so Christianity is booming. So they form this church, but then Satan kind of got in there with these false teachings that caused people to kind of doubt about, you know, did we get Jesus right? Did we get Christianity right? Am I believing the right thing? And the kind of, you know, well, in seminary, my, my professor that taught us on church history, early church history and heresies and false doctrines, he had one of those voices, you know, that they start to speak and immediately puts you to sleep. You ever been there before? I mean, it was, it was comical. If you sit in the back of the class, as soon as you start talking, you see people just kind of like, Anyway, but uh, what was going on at this church, he, everybody talked about it, is it was like Gnosticism, if you know what that is, but before Gnosticism came about. So this was the beginning stage of it. And what, what that is, is the belief that started spreading around the Church of Colossae was that everything spiritual is good, stay with me, and everything physical is bad. Right, So everything you can touch, feel, see is evil and bad, but everything spiritual is good. And so when it came to Jesus, the, the, the doctrine that was going around was that, hey, Jesus, the person that we believe in in the church, he wasn't fully human. right? The whole fully God, fully human thing, he wasn't a full human being because that would be wicked. And on top of that, was he not only just fully human or not fully human, he wasn't really God. He was a spiritual being, kind of like a ghost but he wasn't like the creator. He wasn't what you should base your life off of. And so Paul writes them to say, hey, this is who Jesus is. He reminds them to refocus on who Jesus is. And it was, it's kind of like, have you ever been to a, a big conference or something? And before the speaker gets up, someone else gets up and says, so-and-so is going to talk about it. They have a PhD in science and this. And then they give a little description, a bio before they come up. In some ways, Paul is going to talk to us about this morning. He's going to say, hey, this is who Jesus is. This is what his name means. And my hope for this morning as we, as we look at that, that that can refocus us. 
that that can answer the questions that maybe we have about who Jesus is. So with, with that said, Colossians 1, verse 15, we're going to take this, we're going to kind of go verse by verse. So stay with me if you can. But Colossians 1, 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the image of the invisible God. You see, almost every human being that has ever existed, and I imagine you've asked this question too, since the Garden of Eden has asked the question, what does this all mean? How did we get here? Have you had one of those moments you go outside at night after dinner and you look at the stars and the clouds? If you're in Southern California, you see maybe two stars, but maybe you've driven outside or you get away from the smog and the light pollution and you see the sky and you wonder, wow, how did this get here? Did someone make this? What, what, how does this all work? Why do I have feelings and a desire for purpose? Is there something more? And mankind's asked this ever since the beginning. And Paul here is saying, hey, guess what? There is something more. And the question that we all ask of, did something create this? Is there a God? Did he, he's saying, guess what? That God that you can't see, you can see in the person of Jesus. You ever wonder, wonder that? You know, Christianity would be a lot easier, wouldn't it, if God was just around? Like imagine if he was over in, you know, City of Orange and you could just go by and say, hey, can I make an appointment? Let's talk, you know, let's get a latte. I mean, it'd be so much easier, but you can't see him. You can't necessarily hear his voice all the time. But Paul's saying, hey, church, remember, if you want to know what God looks like, if you want to know what he says, look at the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul's telling the church, hey guys, just a few years ago, this, this person, you know, Mary and Joseph, they came and there was no room in the inn, but this baby was born and that was actually God in flesh. Totally sinless, totally perfect. He wasn't just a man, but he was fully God. So much so that if a person so much just touched his cloak or his clothes, they would be healed. So much so that if, they, if the, the, the winds and the rain and a storm, he had control over that. At, a, at one word, he could say, stop, and it stops. He's saying the invisible God, look at God, has loved us and shown us who he is. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, don't get confused when it says firstborn, because a lot of people have taken this and said, oh, guess what? God existed first. And then Jesus was born, and that's when he came into existence. Paul is not saying that. We're going to see in the next few verses. Firstborn in, in the old days, right, in history, was kind of the person of importance. If you were the firstborn in a family, you were like the big deal. It means you were above everybody else. And what Paul, when he says he's the first one, he's saying he's above all creation. And look at what he's going to say here. You still with me? Let's keep going through this. Look at what else he says in Colossians 1, 16 through 17. Stay with me. He says, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. Look at what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, Jesus didn't, he's not just what God looks like, but he was before everything. And guys, he created 
everything. He was there before the foundations of the world. Jesus just didn't come into existence 2,000 years ago, but he's been God the whole, he's been always, he's been here forever. You know, I've been, my wife hates it, but uh, when I get home and I want to relax sometimes after dinner, I turn on Animal Planet or I watch, you know, there's all these documentaries on whales and sea life and all this stuff. It bores her to death, but for me, I love it. I don't know why. It's like watching golf in some ways. Um, but I've been watching this. The one, I, one I've been on, it's on the Disney Channel. It's about migration, how different animals migrate. And it's crazy. Like there are, do you know, some whales live to be like 60 or 70. And by the time they get to that age, they will have traveled the circumference of the globe 60 times. And the crazy thing about it is a lot of scientists, they study it and they're like, we have no idea how they know where they're going. Their eyes aren't that amazing, right? Where they can see to the bottom. They they can see stuff, but it's not like they can, there's really almost no way for them to navigate. Some people, they hypothesize, okay, well, maybe it's the gravitational pull. Maybe it's the tides. Maybe it's the magnetic field. But there's mystery to it. Even like butterflies. I don't know how many like butterflies. I know you're like, why are we talking about that? But butterflies, some of them travel across entire continents. How do they figure it out? We don't know. It's not like they're flying over like, well, there's the 10 that meets the five and it goes down to Tijuana. And that's how we, they don't think that their brain is so, it doesn't make any sense how they navigate, but they do. And if you look at creation, there's so many things that just boggle our minds. Like, how did this happen? There's a frog that the weather gets so cold in this particular place that it literally freezes. Its heart stops, it stops breathing, and it turns into basically an icicle. And then what happens is then when it thaws out, it comes back alive. How did this happen? You see, Paul is saying, guess what? If you know the name of Jesus, there's a reason for all of this. And all the mysteries that we don't understand about creation, we can make sense because God made it. The whales know how to navigate because God showed them, put it in their DNA. This is how you navigate. It's not mother nature. It's God that said, I've created you and made you and formed you to do something. Look at what he says there. He doesn't just say God created everything, but he said that all things hold together through him. We can't explain a lot of stuff. Science can't even explain the molecules and all of that stuff and the energy behind it. How do they stay together? How does it all work? There's a lot of mystery. Well, guess what? If you know Jesus Christ, you can have faith that, okay, no, it makes sense because he holds it together. Psalm says the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Creation proclaims the name of Jesus Christ. It proclaims we had a creator. And if you know who Jesus is, if you know his name, when you look at all of this, it is saying, hey, someone created us. Someone made us. But it's also saying something else. It's not just saying that God created. It's also saying there's something wrong. You know, one of the things about those like animal shows, if you watch them, they always kind of leave on a downer. Like literally after every single one, it's like, oh, you love the coral reefs? They're beautiful. Guess what? They're dying. They're not going to be here in like five years, right? And then there's like, oh, you love these whales? Well, guess what? They're dying. Because of what's happening in the world, it's going to go away. They're going to go extinct. And so what that does to me is it puts me in a bad mood. My wife's like, what's up? Why are you upset? It's like, well, you're using a straw with your cup. It's going to kill a turtle. You know, and then we get into this argument. And uh, so, but, but you see this and you see the fragility of it. 
and that there's problems, that it's decaying. But you see, if we know who Jesus is, we look and say, well, that's normal because the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And there's this thing called sin at the fall that the world says that creation groans for its savior. Creation not only says we are created, but it's crying out, someone save us. There's something that's not right. And, and we need someone to put everything back in order. And you see, that's the hope of knowing Jesus. Because what that means is that he came and he died and he slayed sin. But one day he's coming back. And he's going to restore creation. What does that mean for us? That means that as your body fades and my body fades, as we get old, as we get diseases, as animals go extinct, as rainforests die, that we have the hope of, guess what? My hope is not in this world. My hope is not in my body. My hope is in the name of Jesus Christ because he created it all and he's coming back. The name of Jesus. Look at what else Paul says. How good is this? Are you still with me for election year? He says this, that he's not only created all things, but whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. I don't know if you've been keeping up with elections and our politics and stuff. It can be kind of discouraging, can it not? But you see, now more than ever, talk about refocus. Look at what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, your hope's not in the rulers. Your hope's not in governors. It's not in presidents. It's not in political parties. It's in the God who created it all. Look at, if you'll bear with me, look at what the psalmist says here. How relevant is this for us these next couple months? He said this, do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. Whether their spirit departs, they return to the ground, and on that day their plans come to nothing. He says this, Blessed are those whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. You don't like who's governor, maybe. You don't like what's going on. Guess what? That's not where your hope is, or at least not where it should be. It is found in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's telling the church. Hey, refocus. This is the person above it all. Let's quickly read through some more. Colossians 1, 18 through 19. Paul, again, he's describing who Jesus is. Look what he says. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Then in everything, he might be preeminent or supreme. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I love that part. Paul's like, hey, He's the image of God. He's above all else. He created everything. He holds everything together. He's above every ruler. But guess what? If that's not enough, his focus and his delight is this thing called the church. You see, the church, I want us to be reminded, this is what we're about. As great and as marvelous as all of creation is, as Tempting as it is to become all political and all thinking about that, our focus should be that the head of the body of the church is Jesus Christ. 
God loves the church. He didn't create everything just to be like, wow, I love whales, right? Or, oh man, you know, sea turtles. Like those are all good, but they're a fraction of the value of his church. The church is the pinnacle of his delight. When we meet on Sunday mornings, when we gather online, God is amongst us. He says the head of the body of the church. And then he, then he says this, the firstborn from the dead. You ever think about the crux of life? You acquire all this knowledge, you get an education, you get all this experience, and you work your life, you know, you try to better yourself, you take classes or get degrees and all of this, all of that just so you can get older, your body decays, your mind decays, and eventually die. Everything about that? You know, there's diseases at the end of your life, your brain stops to function, and all the progress you made fades away. No one can defeat death. No one ever has except one man, and his name is Jesus Christ. On his own accord, without help from anyone else, could say, no, I'm going to continue to live. I'm going to rise again because I am preeminent. I am supreme above all else. What does supremacy, what does preeminence mean? It means surpassing all others. Jesus says, I am the pinnacle of creation. I created it. I can defeat. I can bend and break the rules because I am the rule maker. You know, one of the temptations in my life is I, I know my purpose is to make his name great. But what I so often do is I live to make my name great. I'm so often, I'm so focused on, okay, how can I impress others? How can I do well at my job so I look successful? How can I, when I go to that dinner party, you've all been here, right? You go to a party or you go to church and there's the people in the room. You say, oh, so-and-so is a doctor. So-and-so is a lawyer. They're a self-made millionaire. Oh, but they are really high up in their job. And then you, you just compare and size up and be like, oh man, my life isn't as good as that. I'm not, my, I'm not as good. I, 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 but, and my, I'm constantly thinking about how can I climb up the ladder and make my name great? And Paul's saying, guess what? Refocus. It's not about you, Abel. It's about him. You are never going to be greater than him. You're never going to be more supreme. You are going to die. You're going to fade. Your knowledge is limited. I am what it's about. St. Augustine said, if Christ is not valued, you know, he says Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. Paul goes on to say, stay with me. We're going to wrap this up soon. Who is this person of Jesus? I love how Paul writes this because these are all amazing things, are they not? I mean, talk about an introduction of who someone is. You can't, no one can compete. Supreme. But he saves this for last. He saves this for last. As if all creation was a stage. As if it was all the magnificent, magnificent of it was just to point to one thing. He says, this is what it's pointing to. If the description of Christ isn't enough, this is the pinnacle. This is the greatest achievement. This is the greatest description of who God is. Look at what he says in verse 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Verse 20 says this, and through him 
to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Why did Jesus come? Why did he show himself? Why did he create all this? Why did he do all of this? It was to show all of creation, everything. This is my heart. If there's anything that's going to describe me as God, it's that even when people sin against me, even when they reject me, even when they say, God, I don't want you. Even when all those people at Ambassador Church have those days where they're like, I don't don't want anything to do with you, God that I still chose to die for them. This is the greatest picture of who Jesus is, is what he did at the cross for us. And that he's going to restore one day. You know, the Bible says he's coming back. There's going to come a day when Jesus comes down to creation and the church is raptured up and he's going to renew it all and make it all new again. We've seen who Jesus is, but what does it mean for us? And I got two questions in closing, if you're still with me. How will you respond to this reminder of who Jesus is? How will you respond in knowing the name of Jesus? You know, the Bible says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everybody's going to have to do that at one point. Everyone's going to acknowledge the name of Christ. But some people, it'll be the first time, and some people, they've ever done it many times. What I mean by that is, at the end of all things, you want to be the person that's confessing it for the hundredth, for the thousandth time, because your life has been a life of where you've already said, Jesus, you are it. You are my hope. You, the cross that you died on, that covered my sin. I want to be your child. I want to live to exalt your name. But for others, they're going to spend their entire lives rejecting that message, rejecting the name of Jesus, saying, no, it's not about you, it's about me. I want to exalt my name. I don't want anything to do with you, Christ. And when they have to confess this, it won't be as a child of God, but as an enemy of God. Do you know who Jesus is? That's the first question. How will you respond? The second is this. Have you forgotten the name of Jesus? What do I mean by that? Well, we didn't talk about it, but one of the beautiful things in this passage is Paul says, all things were created through him. We talked about that, but then he said this, all things were created through him and for him. Remember the story of Sarah and I were driving in the truck. It's freezing cold. Um, We look out at that scene. I felt so small. You want to know why human beings take so much joy in seeing something that is so much more majestic, something that is so much greater than them. And we enjoy that. We pay money to fly across the world to see these sights. We watch shows that we can see beautiful sceneries. We love it. Why? Because we are made to exalt something bigger than ourselves. And we are made 
to find joy in feeling small in light of something great. And what does that mean? It means that we were made to make the name of Jesus Christ great. And that that's our ultimate source of joy and purpose in life because all things were created through him and for him. The purpose of all of creation, the purpose of humanity is to say, Jesus, it's about you. My life is about you. It's not about me. I don't want to make my life great anymore, Jesus. I want to make you great. I want you to be Lord over my life. That's why Paul could say that, so now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Have you forgotten what your life is about? Your life is to make his So as we wrap this up, as we close in prayer, let's refocus. It's all about the name of Christ. It's all about exalting. The great words, the old saints in Zendorf said this, preach the gospel, die, and be forgiven.